0: Amen. Let me uh, encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 13. I will start in verse 1. Ask you to bend your knees just a hair for 39 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house when he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made, and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools of Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he wouldn't listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he wouldn't listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe of sleeves, with sleeves, for, those, or for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying as loud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons, and Absalom came to the king and said, "'Behold, your servant has sheep shears. "'Please let the king and his servants go with your servant.'" But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Excuse me, yeah. But then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. The king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead." But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's son came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. You guys doing all right? Some energy in the house today, huh? Just worshiping the Lord, getting after Him with joyful hearts. It's great to do that with you guys. And if you're joining us on live stream, welcome. We're so glad that you are with us. If you have a copy of God's Word, 2 Samuel chapter 13 is where you're going to want to be this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 13. And let me just extend a hearty welcome to those of you who are new. We are so glad that you're here and uh, recognize the fact that it can be awkward, maybe even uncomfortable to come to a new church, you don't know exactly what we do, you don't know how all of it works, and so we're just delighted that you're here, and if we can do anything to come alongside you as you are trying to figure out a church home, if that's the case, we would love to do it, I will be out in the lobby, there will be people in the connect room to help you, it would be a joy. By the way, my name is Scott, and I'm the lead pastor here, otherwise it'd be weird if I was just helping you as a stranger, a random dude that was up here, no, I love you, I love the people of this church and want to help you if we can, okay? That is my desire for you. You've come on an interesting day because we have quite the text in front of us, do we not? Let's get after it. title of the message this morning is, Like Father, Like Sons. Like Father, Like Sons. And this entire chapter reads like a train wreck in slow motion, doesn't it? It's almost like watching a multi-car pileup of sin happen and here's the thing I know about a multi-car pileup uh, when it happens on the other side of the freeway there's another danger going the opposite direction you know what I'm saying because what happens yeah you got people that are gawking and going whoa look at that and I'm like when anytime time a pileups over here and I'm driving this way I'm like on ten and two you know what I'm saying And I got the break ready to go because people gawk and they stare and the temptation for us today is to gawk and stare at the tragedy this is and think to yourself, just because I don't duplicate those deeds, we forget the fact that we duplicate the same flesh. And so we can look at this passage and go, look at that drama. Look at that, I'd never do something like that. And the problem is the very same flesh that resides in these characters resides inside of us. And so we can be caught gawking and staring and not watching with warning for ourselves. Or maybe even worse, we can look at this hot mess that is in this text and take the foot off our own gas pedal of godliness. And why would we do that? Well, because we see the train wreck this is, you look at your own life, as messed up as it may be, and you're like, well, it ain't that bad. They're jacked. I'm okay. Like, I thought wife and I had problems, but you know what? In comparison, we're good. Let let me just remind you that the standard is not anyone in this chapter. The standard is the word of God, and the standard is the word of God. You follow me? Jesus Christ So we need to make sure that we don't just gawk at this chapter, look at everything falling apart and go, my life's pretty good. God help us because the very same things dwelling in them dwell in us. And so we jump in here and we are striving after holiness and we are not going to settle for that comparison. And we see the Davidic family drama start to drop like dominoes, which praise be to God for this church, I now know what that game is. So we're thankful and if you know, you know, and if you know, you know. I don't have time for that today. Let's just say I got some help on an old game that now everybody plays. Am I right? All right. All right. And Yahweh is not mentioned in this entire affair. You hear anything about Yahweh in chapter 13? Nothing. So you could say that the kingdom is falling apart. Chaos is happening everywhere. Yahweh is nowhere to be found. Has he gone fishing? Has he retired early? Is he kind of like, hey, you know what? This is such a mess, I'm out. Is that what Yahweh has done? No, of course not. We know what's going on is actually the fulfillment of what Yahweh said in chapter 12. Did he not? In verse 10, as a result of David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, he said, listen, the sword would not, David, depart from your house. Is that not what we're seeing here? And further in verse 11, he said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is precisely what takes place from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 20. And so get this, this is the big idea for this morning and I'm gonna leave it in David's position and we're gonna draw out implications and applications for us. But chaos in David's house highlights the reality and consequences of David's sin As Yahweh said it would. So, when it seems most out of control and things seem most chaotic, what is our solace? What is our comfort in those moments in our lives? Where it just seems like everything's getting worse. And it does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? It feels like evil is getting more evil. Feels like wickedness is getting increasingly more wicked. What is our solace in the least when nothing else seems to make sense? And it's this, Yahweh is fulfilling his word. Yahweh is fulfilling his word of judgment. When you look at a 2 Timothy chapter 3, and it says, but in these last days, consider, men will be lovers of self, right? They will be ruthless and reckless and and all kinds of uh, haters of good and lovers of evil and inventors, all this kind of stuff happens and we're going, oh wait, this is God fulfilling his words. See, chaos in David's house highlights the reality, we're going to see this, and consequences of David's sin as Yahweh said it would. When I highlight chaos and I highlight consequences, one of the applications for us is to understand that when you engage in sin, the consequence in your life is some form of chaos. Nothing's changed, we see it highlighted here. What do I mean by highlighted? Well, the way this chapter breaks down is fascinating because it breaks down into two major sections that are, in a sense, an elevated repetition of the sins of David played out in his sons. So the first one, we read about it, was Amnon with his sexual sin that would parallel which part of David's story? Bathsheba. Now, I said elevated response because here's the thing. When you are a teacher and you have disciples, guess what? They'll take your stuff, and they usually take it a step further, don't they? When you have kids and they're seeing your example and the way you do it, if you're a certain way, they're often likely to take it a step further. The first 22 verses are to give David sight, sadly, through his own kids, to just be like face-to-face with the reality of his sin, in particular with his sin against Bathsheba. And then, verses 23 to 39, parallel what? The death of Uriah. That Absalom, in his contrived murderous act, is paralleling the death of Uriah and what David did to contribute to that. And so these are chips off the old block, you guys. One commentary said it like this, David's sin has come home to roost right in their own house. Bringing to light the truth of David's sin so David is seeing it in the shameless action of his sons. And so it's gonna seem insane. But our confidence has to be even in the most difficult, chaotic moments that God is, in fact, the one who's still sovereign, bringing his word of judgment to pass. And so here's how I want to teach it today. Two sections corresponding to those parallels with Bathsheba and Uriah. So two points, and then I want to apply based on the characters, we get a robust explanation of these characters, which is unusual. Sometimes we don't get a lot of information, and other times we do. But I will say this, it is not always a safe thing when you're trying to preach faithfully to scriptures to take the characters out and start to do life lessons. You can can get off task on the expository nature of explaining the text. However, it's such a robust explanation of each character that I think it's fitting today we're going to teach each point and then I'm going to p- apply things that we can learn based on every character. Three on the first point and two on the second. Okay? So we're going to teach and then we're going to apply. Buckle up. Here we go. Point one like fathers' sexual sin, like sons. Okay? You're going to see this playing out. Like fathers' sexual sin. Like sons. First thing out of the gates, we see Amnon's infatuation. This dude is apparently, verse 1, in love. But by verse 15, he ends up loathing, he ends up hating the one he's in love with. And so, by the way, we'll just start up front by saying if you love someone that when you don't get your way with them, you hate them after. That's love's counterfeit, not actually love. It's another word that starts with an L. Come on, give it to me. It's lust. Yeah, that's not unclear, is it? When you can go from loving someone to loathing someone, it's called lust. That's love's counterfeit. There's quite a few counterfeits in the passage. That would be one of them. He made himself sick in his lust, not being fulfilled with this sister of his, Tamar, he's doubly depressed for two reasons. Number one, she is beautiful. And number two, she was a virgin, which to him meant of marriageable age. In other words, if he's the, and he was, the lead guy to the throne, the crown prince, he should be able to have his pick of the litter. And for some reason, I don't know if it's kingly protection, that's what seems to be the implication. He can't, the words are, and this is kind of sick the way he says this, it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Or or you may understand it as, he was powerless to possess her, was the idea. Okay, that's, do I gotta gotta say it? That's, That's jacked. That's a problem. But he was so into her, his lust was strong for Tamar, which by the way, the word Tamar means palm tree. It was signifying her fruitfulness. It will come into play in a little bit as we start to draw out some implications. And so he's got this passion, Amnon does, But his passion so overwhelmed him, he hadn't been able to come up with a plan. He was just stuck in the wallowing of it. And so enter his crafty cousin, Jonadab, to come up with a plan to help Amnon cash in on his passions. By the way, that person as a friend, time to kick him out of the picture if you got one of those, okay? Where you got all these passions you want to fulfill and you're like, I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, thank God. And your friend's like, hang on a second, I can get this done for you. Here's the plan. Fake like you're sick kick, you know, everybody out, get her to yourself, right? Th- this is twisted, but this is his cousin who's coming up with this plan. Here's what we hear about him. He was a very crafty man. Does that sound like anything, anyone else we know about in the Bible? Mm. It's interesting. The word actually is wise. It, it's, um, it's the same word that you would use to translate genuine godly wisdom, actually, But we're supposed to pick up from the context that it's counterfeit. It's the counterfeit wisdom. It's the opposite of wisdom. And and what you find about many chapters in Scripture and what you'll find out about many chapters in 2 Samuel, there's, there's loaded Old Testament allusions from earlier parts of the Bible. So that craftiness sounds similar, doesn't it? Almost like there's a snake slithering in the background there. And I think you're right to kind of pick up on those echoes because it seems like Jonadab, and he's not just shrewd here, but he's shrewd throughout the text, was shrewd in a way the serpent was shrewd in the garden. And like the serpent, he encourages Amnon to seize forbidden fruit. Jonadab draws up the play, tells him to fake sick, sends Amnon out to execute it, and verses 6 through 14 are Amnon executing this sick and twisted play. And the first thing we see is in verse 6, he asked the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. A couple things I want you to see. Number one, hard to understand in the Jewish context that we're not super familiar with. This is a diva request. Okay, You know when someone's being a diva? Like, come on. You have all these servants that could feed you food, but you're not going to eat from anyone's hand except this person's. And it's not enough that she makes it. She has to spoon feed it to me, okay? If you're that king's son, you are a diva, okay? Theological word, (laughs) D-I-V-A, diva. This is a diva request. This is an easy one to shut down. What does David not do? He doesn't shut it down. Think about what stops, just for a second, if David had shut it down right here. Remember those dominoes that I was saying were falling? If the dad in this moment shuts this down, just from being a foolish, simple, diva-esque request, how much of this chapter would have been different? But David completely caves to the request. And like father, like son, how does that unfold? Well, she puts on her apron. She starts baking, which is interesting. The word is heart-shaped cakes. I don't know. That's interesting. And she comes into Amnon's presence to give Amnon these cakes. And when she is baking these cakes, it says that he's watching her, right? It's all happening in his sight. Verse 6, let her make a couple of cakes in my sight. Verse 8, it's in his sight, and it's starting to draw you into the story because, of course, the first thing David saw was that woman bathing on the roof. And it's drawing you in with, "I I want to see her do it. I want to watch her do it. So lust is like now zoning in on a person who's in the flesh and she's making and baking and all this stuff and then she comes in and he goes, I want everybody out. I want them all out. And then he, she brings in the food, she leans in close and he takes his sister. Sound familiar? Verse 11. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. Like father, like son, Amnon uses his strength to overpower her. Just like Amnon, David used his superior position to take a woman. There is also interesting allusions to Joseph and Potiphar's wife. In fact, the same language used of Joseph to, in the situation with Potiphar's wife, where Potiphar's wife is basically saying, come lie with me, Genesis 39, 12, ends up being the exact same Hebrew language that's here when amnon says to tamar come lie with me now what you will find interesting about the language of laying is obviously we understand that's a euphemism for something sexual correct here's the difference david laid with bathsheba and with was part of the translation emphasis implying at least the possibility of consent The language here, even though it says with in the text, is not as strong and it actually reads more like Amnon laid Tamar, forcing her against her will. So four times in the text, she's pleading with him not to do it. Four times. The first thing she appeals to is you'd be disobedient to God's word. And listen, the person that's so lustful, they're about to grab your hand and do something inappropriate to you is probably not going to listen to, hey, you disobeyed God's word. You ever tried to evangelize someone? You're like, well, let's just start by you're being disobedient to God's word. And they're like, I don't care about God's word. Right? So then she goes, okay, well, if you do this to me, this shame stays with me forever. My life in this moment is ruined. She's pleading. And then she goes, okay, that's not going to work because you could see it in his eyes. Like he wanted her. And he goes, okay, fine, all right. If you do this, you won't even get the throne. People aren't going to trust you. This wickedness, this will compromise your ability to ascend to the throne. He still wasn't hearing anything. And he goes, she goes, well, at ma- least ma- let's talk to David. Maybe we could get married first and this will be okay. Which, by the way, wasn't okay. Anyway, she's grasping at straws. She is desperate to get out of this situation. And the authors crafted the story in such a way where we come to this place in verse 14 through verse 15a where we see this is where the story kind of hones in on its emphasis. It says this, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So you have to understand that lust and loathing don't go far apart. He hated her right after it. Why? Well, you could imagine a whole bunch of different reasons. We don't know from the text. But maybe just that it was such a struggle, she resisted him so much that she, he hated her for that resistance even though he committed the act. It poisoned the well even more. Obviously, it was a recognition of something ungodly and sinful that he had done, and he shuts her out, and he says it in a way. The text says, get up, go. But you may have a different translation, and it's literally, get this out. That's what he says. Dehumanize, depersonalize, get this out. And like a piece of impersonal trash, she is tossed to the curb. Forget that. Forget her. Forget it. And then you compound that sin with the fact that if that had gone on and that behavior had been engaged in, in any way, shape, or form that was certainly less violent than this, there was a requirement of a bride price to be paid which only compounds his sin of which he says, get her out, bolt the door, I don't want to see her again. And her life from that moment on could be summarized in one word which we see in verse 20 which is the word desolate. It's like, a living death for a Hebrew woman. No marriage but been violated, and no children puts you in a very, very difficult spot. And Absalom takes her in and cares for her, and, and she, he, almost, he, have a, he has a sense, like, who did this? Like, he almost already knows. He, he asks, did, did, did Amnon do this, essentially? He has this understanding going on, and and then we get to verse 21, and here's when King David, king and father, has an opportunity to regulate. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. And so he, and so he, so he did nothing. He didn't do anything. You have a problem with that? Look, I have a visceral reaction. I'm like, Angry just thinking about it. Listen, with that level of atrocity, anger is not enough. That should be clear, right? Anger, he did nothing but be angry. Which, of course, doesn't help his own son's foaming anger as we think about how the story unfolds. This is the first portion that parallels the sin of David with Bathsheba he's now getting to see it in his own son's sins so let's see if we can't apply this a little bit let's take some lessons from Tamar first and the first thing I want you to understand about Tamar church is we need to listen to Tamar she was not listened to and we need to listen to her what do I mean what do I mean by that you and I need to listen to Tamar I mean that you and I need to acknowledge and abhor this perversion in this text. That's what we need to do. We need to hate this with the hatred of hell, hatred, hate hate, hate this with horror. We need to, if we're going to hate sin the way she pleads with us to hate sin, we need to call sin what it is this loved ones is rape. This is actually worse than rape it's incestual rape which is doubly forbidden in the Old Testament Leviticus 18:9 Leviticus 18:11 Leviticus 20 Deuteronomy 20 it's multiple times forbidden The words violate, which means forced, and the word nebula, which means godlessness. You get the word outrageous in the text. It is used for the most heinous of sexual perversions, like the act of homosexuality it's used for, as well as this act of rape and others such like that. But the most egregious forms of engaged sexual sin, the word nebula, godlessness, is used. This is a forced taking of Tamar, and we need to call it what it is so we can hate it like we should hate it. And I'll just say this, um, some of you sadly may have this story to some degree, but others don't, and so how do we then apply this on a level that's maybe more across the board? And I would just say this, ladies, if someone is pressing you to have sex outside of marriage, that is lust, not love, period. And honestly, that would be the perfect moment to dump them. They don't love you no matter how much they say they love you because the Bible gets to define what love is and you getting pressed to have sex outside of marriage is not love. That's some counterfeit thing that if you're not careful could end just as badly as this. In the sense of the loathing, in the sense of the heartache of all this. But I will say to the one who's struggling today, and what a question, where could I carry my shame? Somebody may be walking in some of this today that it has been affected. You are the recipient of of some sort of abusive, sexual relationship, heaviness. Where could I carry my uh, shame? And you feel alone in that. Let me just encourage you to carry it to a little hill called Calvary. Let me just encourage you to carry it to Jesus. No one can carry your shame like Jesus carries shame. No one bears the burden of sin against you as well as sin you've committed against God in other ways like Jesus who is gentle and lowly. Take your, his yoke upon you for his burden is light. And delight yourself in him, lean into him, trust him, come around biblical counselors that can pray for you and come alongside you in the healing, but only Jesus can provide the healing that you need from some shame that you're walking in. And so to the question of Tamar, where could I carry my shame? Take it to the cross of Calvary. Lessons from Amnon, okay? Lessons from Amnon. It's easy to look at this stuff and be like, uh, "Well, there's like bad people, you know. There's really bad people. There's me, which is less bad, of course, than bad people and really bad people. But there's levels to this, you know. Like the person who like goes to jail, that's bad. And then, of course, Hitler's really bad. And then I'm like really good for the most part." And so we have a really tough time navigating all of this because we see ourselves so highly. Amnon is not a one-off cat. He's not just one person that we look at and go, man, that guy was messed up. His nature is alive and well in our flesh, every single one of us. I want to show you how similar this is to who you used to be before Christ. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. This is speaking about the unbeliever that now has become a Christian, talking about who we used to be. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, listen to this, slaves to various passions and pleasures. A couple nods that that's fitting, right? Let's keep going. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we used to be. He's saying to the church that now you're different because you're in Christ, but just so you know, that you used to be the ones who were enslaved to your passions, enslaved to your pleasures, who were hating others and hating one another. This is very much near to who we are. And so you see a whole bunch of problems with Amnon, all eyes, no ears. You need to listen more. Less looking, more listening. Less looking, more listening. There's all passion in this and no personhood. Less passion, more acknowledgement of image bearers of God. Psalm 119 is clear. How can a young man, and this could go for everyone, right? It's not like young men, when you get older, you graduate from this. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? You know how you're going to stay pure? If you stay locked in on the Bible's ethic on these sexual realities, and frankly, anything else. And of course, the problem here is there's all lust in Amnon in this moment and no law of God. And where the law of God is trumped by lust, enslaved to the passions of the flesh, this stuff breaks out. And let me just say, again, if I were to broaden this like I did to the ladies, to broaden this to males, here's what I would say. Men, forced submission of any kind even in your marriage, is unacceptable and wicked and you should repent of that. Don't come in using Ephesians 5 to explain why you treat your wife a certain way and force her into submission. Any submission you're having to force is an ungodly submission that deserves repentance and hatred. Am I clear? How many want to come back? I'll preach every single text exactly the best way that I can possibly preach it to get the emphasis across that it needs to have. You need to repent if you're in that place. Lessons from Jonadab. Here's the lesson from Jonadab. Giftedness needs the companionship of godliness. Giftedness needs the companionship of godliness. This guy may have been the most dangerous. He has all ability without integrity. He's able to get stuff done because he has no principles to hem him in. This is so the classic early business guy, right? You're getting started. You're trying to get something off the ground. You're trying to take care of your family. You got to get a few, uh, you know, investors in something. Got to get a real estate deal going. And so you know what? In order to make it happen, because I'll start being good with it once it gets going, but it's so hard to get my foot in the door. It's so hard to get investors. I'm going to go ahead and make this happen by not allowing principles to him. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't be that guy. In some sense, I think Jonadab is the most dangerous character in perhaps this entire story. Because wisdom without character is craftiness. This is dangerous in the church because the church is accept, uh, uh, obsessed with gifts because it's about entertainment on a Sunday. So if someone can keep your attention, you're like, I want that guy. No, you want the godly guy. And he has to be gifted to teach, sure. Give me godliness. That's one of the problems. We need to go after assessing that and calling our elders to do that assessment and all that come on because that is a serious danger to the church and this guy. Listen, let it be said to the Jonadabs who are crafty without character, don't make it easier for someone to commit sin, right? give that's your M.O., you're in accountability group and you're constantly going, you know what? It's not a big deal. That's okay. God will forgive you. We talked about grace last week. God will forgive you. Just, you're okay. No, Grace is supposed to keep you from sin because grace is redirecting your passions towards Christ and honoring him. Don't be this guy. And I wish it like stopped there. Wouldn't it be great? You're like, oh. But the second part of the Narrative continues, and we see the second component of David's sin, like fathers' murderous act, like sons. Like fathers' murderous act, like sons. Absalom is now the one that's in focus. He's a counterfeit of his father. He's gonna end up fleeing the country, right, because of sin committed, just like David fled. Of course, David fled because of Saul's irrational hostility, correct, Saul had some problems with David. Wasn't David's fault, but they both flee. They both find exile in a Gentile country, and they both come back to the nation, except when Absalom eventually comes back, he's going to try to cease the kingdom, which David didn't do. And so you see parallels, but you see counterfeit. And all of that's going to happen, but before we get there, it begins with a simmering anger that's been kept under wraps for two years. This dude has been stewing. You ever just think about like, I mean, the plotting that goes on. I just, for some reason, this is what I was thinking all week, is it's just this for two years. Like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. I, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but it's going to be, and I'm going to get away with it. I'm gonna, maybe I'll just wait a while until either he, everyone's calmed down because I am so fr- right, frustrated, and he's just simmering in anger for two years. And then sheep shearing time comes which is when you guys have parties, right? (laughs) It's like graduation, Christmas, and sheep shearing time. That's when they used to party. And so he's like, that's it, sheep shearing time. Break out the shears, shear somebody else, this will go well. So he has this party, and we're immediately, if you can remember back to 1 Samuel 25, we're immediately brought back to illusions of Nabal. Remember the fool and Abigail? Do you remember how David wanted to kill Nabal for being such a fool? And Abigail what? Restrained him? Stopped him? You see some parallels, but also some differences? I'm sorry if I made the baby cry. <laughs> I realize that sometimes I'm just loud. I'm sorry. There's connections with Nabal and Amnon. They highlight the differences between Absalom and David. When David encountered the fool at Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, he was ready to take vengeance but was restrained. Absalom comes and does it and shows no such restraint. So what do you have? Verses 24 to 27, David is uh, the recipient of an invitation from Absalom. Come to this party. You will shear. We'll hang out. We'll eat. It'll be awesome. David says, you know what? If I come with all my servants, that's going to be way expensive. I'm not going to do it to you. And he goes, no worries, because he didn't really care anyway, because he wanted to invite who? Have your son come take your place. And so the son is, and what happens with David again? He does what? He does nothing. He just caves again. And so they're invited over. Amnon's now in his place. The execution plan takes place, and this is what Absalom says. He says, when the time is tipsiness, right? When he gets tipsy, that's the time to listen to my command and kill him, okay? So now Amnon's in, like sheep-shearing party has begun. He is a couple drinks in, and Absalom sees that as the perfect time to engage. He streams kill, they kill Panic ensues. Princes flee, which I always found funny on this, that they each mounted a mule. (laughs) Anyone else? You're like, go. (laughs) Right? It's like, you mean valiant horse. You know, and it's out of there. And I'm just seeing like all the kings like, no, in slow motion. (laughs) These are fast mules. I don't know. But panic ensues, princes flee, everyone's running around. It's crazy around here. And in the chaos, here''s just so inter- what's interesting about chaos. In chaos, words are often multiplied unhelpfully. Generally speaking, in chaos, words are often multiplied unhelpfully. That is precisely what takes place here. What's the unhelpful word? They're all dead! Ah, they're running around and there's somebody's on there everyone's dead they're all your sons are dead and david goes to mourning guess who's there to cheer david up that snake like Jonadab walks in goes hey champ got some good news for you all that not really true just one of your sons is dead by the way for violating tamar I'll leave you with that. Remember, I'm the guy with the good news. Wants to share it, somehow knows all the information. You know what he doesn't share? Like his part to play in any of it? I'll just leave you with that. God bless. Absalom flees into exile. They mention it three times in the text. He heads to the shore where his family side on his mom's side Grandpa reigns as king in Geshur, and he escapes justice, which was also likely a forfeiting of any likelihood to the throne. And it says in verse 39 that the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And so we have... Two characters we still need to address and how it might apply to us. We have lessons from David and we have lessons from Absalom. First thing, lessons from David. Listen to me, fathers. You are shepherding shepherding your family into something right now. You are shepherding your kids into something, and you doing nothing is shepherding them into something. Instead of it being your leadership, they are taking it on from somewhere else, likely the world. They are being shepherded. It is happening. Some values, they're being shepherded into some kind of person, and so let me be clear. Paternal passivity, though a deep and great temptation, ought not to be the fallout of a Christian man of God. And if you hear it in the background of this whole tragedy, you hear Eli, don't you? From 1 Samuel. Do you remember Hophni and Phinehas who were picking off the chicks at the temple and doing stuff they shouldn't be doing? It has that same vibe and Eli wasn't controlling his kids because he was a worthless man. And in the same way, David doesn't doesn't discipline his kids. He doesn't step in and do what's right. And I, and I get it. He's hemmed in by his own hypocrisy, isn't he? I mean, what am I going to do? Hey, kid, you really shouldn't sleep with someone who's not yours and leverage some sort of authoritative power over, oh. Right? Like, think about, that's the reason people don't go to church, right? Because they don't want to have this heavy of a message, so they're like, I'm out of here, you know? It's the reason why people don't go show up to small group when they've had a really bad week of sin because they don't understand the gospel, that when you have a really bad week of sin, that's the best time to be in church. That is the best time to come to a small group. But in our flesh, then we blame the church for being mean and evil. That guy up there, he was screaming, he was loud, he was, that's, that's just me, and so I'm sorry, that's a problem you and God can take up. Maybe you'll trim me down a little bit, but the content is good for your souls to hear. Because it softens you to the Lord if you will let God do your work and you won't run as far from him in the future. David was hemmed in by hypocrisy and it left him being indulgent with his kids. They could do whatever they want. They could say whatever they want. And the the whole principle on this, guys, is do not let your love for your kids reign above the law of God's word. When you look at 1 Samuel 2, and you look at Eli, God's rebuke to them is that you honored your sons above me by letting them do whatever they want. Do not let it be said of you that you honor your sons above the Lord. You love your sons by honoring the Lord above them. And you navigate what you do even if they don't understand it because you believe God's word is true. stand on it and lead with courage, men step up and do that because of David's lack of courage and weakened by his sin, he failed to rule firmly and he passively allowed his children to grow up as violent men who would do far greater damage than would have been caused in the relationship had he just stepped up at the beginning and had a word. Last thing, lessons from Absalom. Absalom the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god always 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 true the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god and we just keep thinking no this time it does though this time it's going to work well that was somebody else but when i execute anger it's no it's not going to go well you are ba- vengeance is the lord's not yours When you take up vengeance, you enter into the, now you're in the same sinful party as the one you want to execute vengeance upon. You've just now fallen into the same boat of sin, for which God will judge perfectly and bring perfect vengeance on sin in its appropriate measure to every single last person Either that vengeance will fall upon Christ and whom the believer has trusted in or that vengeance will fall upon the person who has rejected Christ and will be judged for that eternally. And again, Absalom is not the rare exception here but the universal rule of the reality of our flesh. If you just look at the big picture for a second, just spread it out. There's no one doing righteousness in Israel in this chapter. You say, how, how does that play out? Well, look, look, at, look in here. Look at us. We have the same truth. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. It is a train wreck. Our lives, apart from Jesus Christ, are train wrecks of righteousness. It's complete unrighteousness in various ways, shapes, or forms. Even the best things we do, we don't do it to glorify God apart from the help of the Lord. So, so, what do we need? We we need the other half of Titus 3 that told us that we were once these people enslaved to passions and pleasures and carrying out this hatred for others and hating one another. We need Jesus. You need Jesus to save you. You need Jesus to sanctify. You don't need Jesus just to be delivered from your sin. You need Jesus to walk with faithfully every single day of our life because God help us. It takes one moment walking out of step with Jesus that tragedy can take place and you can be the one that does it. We need Jesus who saves us, not by works done by any of us in righteousness. It's not about us. It's not about our works. We don't contribute anything but the sin that we've committed to the salvation story that is available to all who would trust in Jesus. We're saved not by works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You receive Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him, and when it's real, he changes you from the inside out. And what that means is not that your flesh disappears, but there's a superior passion that starts to trump the flesh, and by the power of the spirit, you now are no longer enslaved to sin. You can be slaves to righteousness. And we walk that road and six of us are excited about that, you know. I'm just kidding. You guys all are, but you're 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 just dialed in the moment of recognizing what a blessing. What just even an acknowledgement of that, like yes and amen. Thank you, God. So as we come to the table today and we think about the gospel and we think about our lives, it's it's just this reminder of but by the grace go by the grace of God go I. And were it not for Jesus Christ, we would be a wreck because. I was just thinking about this week. I was going, man, it feels like I'm walking. You know when Peter's walking on water and he's got his eyes on Jesus and then he's floating, right? Right on top and floating. He's standing on it, floating. You know what I mean. And then he takes his eyes off Jesus. Just for a second, what starts to happen? He just starts to sink. When we come to communion, it's to get our eyes back on Jesus. Get your eyes back on the fact that your salvation is a gift and it was purchased by a Man, the man Christ Jesus, who is also God, who is truly God and truly man, that you did nothing to contribute to it except the blood that needed to be shed for your sin. And because you are in Christ by faith, and this is for Christians, you come to the table and you take with great joy and thanksgiving as a people who have been bought out of our sin, out of our darkness, and have been ushered into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, As I go down, you come up and grab the elements, will you, if you're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then Pastor Ben will lead us as we continue to worship together.